Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn it over uh, for Michael Sledge's introduction. I'm going to give the mic to Bernard here. Um, let's see. Bernard Cooper is a great writer and a great supporter of writers. He's also the author of the memoir, Bill for My Father. So please help me welcome Bernard Cooper. Hey, um, can everybody hear me okay? Um, I, this is a bit of a warning, but uh, uh, Michael pronounces the names of one of these characters so beautifully that part of this introduction is going to be dubbed by him. I'm just going to move my mouth. Seriously. Okay. Elizabeth w Bishop was and remains one of America's finest poets. In his new novel, The More I Owe You, Michael Sledge doesn't only draw from the poet's years in South America and her relationship with Brazilian architect <laughs> he brings the lovers and the country to life with unforgettable scenes and sensory details that no biographies of Bishop can match. One of the many qualities I love about Mr. Sledge's prose is that, like Bishop's poetry, it is deceptively direct, even reticent at times. But its clear-eyed observations and exacting language quietly pull the reader into a current of unspoken emotion. As a child, Bishop's mother was committed to a mental institution, and by the time she was five, she was left in the care of various relatives, moving from house to house. One of the virtue of Sledge's novel is that he fully acknowledges the influence of the circumstance without overplaying its role in the formation of either Bishop's character or her work. But always the drive to find home is present in her art. In Bishop's poems, gas stations feature tables covered with greasy doilies. African tribeswomen seen in Life magazine have necks stretched by silver silver coils, quote, like the necks of light bulbs. Always there's the will to find a note of familiarity in what might at first seem alien. The woman we meet in The More I Owe You is the writer who entered the mind of castaway Robinson Crusoe, a man uh, de with a desperate longing to return to England and disappointed when he finally did, who longed once again to leave for parts unknown. The brilliance of Sledge's novel is that it is animated not by the plot of Bishop's life, but by her continual search for stability in a person or sure footing in a place. It's as if the novelist has entered his character's yearning so completely that, Bishop's poem, that like Bishop's poems, no aspect of the physical world is untouched by it. And I'm going to read a little part of a, a poem that, that Michael introduced me to by Bishop that she wrote in Brazil that is, uh, I think, really characteristic of the elegance of her work. All over the roof the rain hisses, and below the light falling of kisses. An electrical storm is coming or moving away. If lightning struck the house now, 
it would run down the roof and down the rods all around us. And we imagined dreamily how the whole house, caught in a birdcage of lightning, would be quite delightful rather than frightening. These lines convey the brief appeasement of Bishop's longing and the emotional charge of Sledge's mesmerizing book. So please help me introduce Michael Sledge. Thank you very much, Bernard. So I'm going to dive right in. Elizabeth held on tight to the cake in her lap. Lota concentrated on the road, taking corners at high speed and yelling after the pedestrian she nearly flattened. The car zigged and zagged up the hillside behind Copacabana, Lota accelerating into the cobblestone curves until the tires cried out, while the force of it pressed Elizabeth's shoulders against the drivers. Only as they crested the mountain to the car pause, balanced momentarily upon the ridge like an eagle surveying its realm. The convolutions of Rio lay before them, the rise and fall of hills populated by slums and apartment buildings, the modern high-rises at the center, Christ above, the harbor, the far ring of mountains. Then, launching into air, down they swooped in a rush. Lotta's hand, shifting gears, repeatedly brushed Elizabeth's thigh. The contact happened so many times, she could not help but feel there was intention behind it. She tried to rearrange her legs, but there was no room at all to maneuver. The car was hardly more than a capsule. Near the bottom of the slope, Lota came to a stop at a crossing where a streetcar passed before them. Decaying 19th century mansions lined the avenue. This neighborhood is Santa Teresa, Lota said, apparently oblivious to the fact that her knuckles had come to rest against Elizabeth's skirt. It was once very rich, as you can see. The aristocrats fled up the mountain to escape yellow fever. Now the buildings are decadent, abandoned to artists and thieves. Before Elizabeth could respond, off they roared, descending further into the steaming, noxious mess of Rio de Janeiro. The fumes, the heat, the traffic, the blaring horns, it was all more than a little disorienting. In such cl close proximity to Lota, Elizabeth felt acutely the fact that they were strangers to one another. Never mind the many afternoons she'd spent with Lota and Mary in New York, or the letters that had passed between them since. She hadn't set eyes on the woman in at least five years, and even then, there'd hardly been a moment shared alone. In fact, she seemed to remember someone altogether different in appearance from this mad woman at the wheel of the convertible. The Rio version of Lota was darker, for one thing, and a bit stouter. Her hair was longer and had a vivid streak of white running through it like a comet. Elizabeth was certain that when they'd first met, it had been pure jet black. One thing she recalled with utter clarity, however, was the voraciousness of Lota's interest in all things, her constant alert looking. There'd been one afternoon in particular, searching the city with Lota for linens she would take back with her to Rio. Brazilians just don't understand the art of stitching, Lota had said, scrutinizing the fabrics. Elizabeth and Mary had followed her from store to store until Lota's eye was finally satisfied. At last the road opened up and Lota blasted out of Rio's orbit. 
The highway allowed a respite from the constant gear changing and thigh touching, so she could finally shift her attention from the hand upon her knee to their route. On Rio's outskirts, a settlement of ramshackle houses, if you could even call them houses, these shacks constructed out of cardboard and crates and other discarded materials cobbled together, went right up to the barricade of a petroleum plant, another hellish landscape of billowing gaseous clouds and sulfuric flames leaking, at, leaking out of tall pipes. Not the most favorable view of a city, Lota said, its entrance or exit. Elizabeth nodded. Odd the things that prompted, that prompted Lota to speak. Interesting always, but impersonal. She turned slightly to study Lota's profile. Even as she drove, Lota grinned as if dominating the roadway were a source of intense satisfaction. The workman's shirt she wore was rolled up on her forearms. She was a diminutive person, but there was heft to her, strength, and also an ease with that strength. You would not mistake her for a delicate woman, nor one whose habit it was to bend to another's will. Now that she was on Lota's home turf, Elizabeth, Elizabeth was desirous to know more of her. Where had she grown up? Where was her family now? And most of all, what was the real story between her and Mary? Mountains popped up from the plain, and they began winding steeply upward. Elizabeth had to keep turning in her seat to look at the unbelievable variety of plants and trees. The mangoes, bananas, and papayas, of course, those she'd expected. But also the thousand others she didn't know the names of, so many of them in flower. Flowers of every color and size, and great, glorious old be trees bearded with exuberant mosses. Underneath them, little roadside stands sold drinks and rugs and purses fashioned out of scraps of brightly colored fabric. Look at that, Elizabeth cried. They had slowed enough on the sinuous road that conversation was at last possible. They're selling old, rusted metalwork. They'll sell anything, Lota said. Almost all of it's trash. Elizabeth had been about to say she found the bird cages charming. But I like the bird jails. I bought a very old one for my house. I'm building a house, did Mary tell you? Yes, she said you are completely obsessed. Absolutely, you must be obsessed or else there's no point. Do you know modernist architecture? Like Corbusier, Oscar Neumeyer? Like Corbusier, I know. I remember now we spoke of him in New York. But I don't know the other one. Is he German? My ignorance is vast. Niemeyer is a genius, but of course you northerners know nothing about him because he's Brazilian and we're just savages. To you, Brazil is coffee and bananas and cannibals and piranhas. Modernism may have started in Europe, but it is pure Brazil. Le Corbusier came here, he influenced our architects, but what they are making now is uniquely Brazilian form of architecture, elegant, sophisticated, organic, and slightly insane. It will show the world what Brazil really is. Is that what you are? I'm beginning to understand the insane part. It's a modernist house I'm building, Lota said proudly. I gathered that. I hired a young architect. He's very up and coming. However, to be honest, the best ideas for the design are my own. It is really like no other house has been built in this country. Four materials are used, concrete, stone, glass, and metal. All of them are visible. 
A modernist building does not hide how it's constructed. It prefers to reveal itself to you. It blurs the boundary between, between inside and outside. I've known a few people like that, said Elizabeth. The joke appeared to go right past Lota. Then smiling, she said, and those people can be very exciting, just like my house. The road climbed higher, up and up. Tendrils of mist began to encircle them, and soon they were driving through a dense fog. In the car's cocoon, Elizabeth could see little of their surroundings beyond the latticework of branches over their heads and the screen of thick foliage on either side of the road. Lota continued her lecture on the subject of Brazil's modernist architecture. No matter what she spoke of, you could not help but be impressed by the expansiveness of this woman's mind. Lota was so passionate about the house she was creating that Elizabeth began to wonder at her failure of passion for her own work. Poetry, when she was young, had seemed to be an open gate into the most lush of landscapes. As lush as that through which they were traveling now, nothing else had compared to the excitement of discovering her growing powers or the reaches of her own imagination. Somehow that had changed. Poetry had used her up. She dedicated her entire adult life to the craft of writing, and yet even with the praise she received, the admiration of a number of people she herself had long admired, and the envy of a handful of others, it had given so little back, even less in times of real need. It was like indentured servitude, or no, like faith in some particularly dry, ascetic, self-castigating religious sect. The reward lay in the devotion itself. They still had a ways to go, Lota said. They were nearing the town of Petropolis. Samambaya was a bit beyond. Just then, they nearly collided with another automobile. A taxi pulled onto the road, and Lota had to brake quickly and swerve into the oncoming lane to avoid it. She screamed something at the taxi driver as she zoomed past, an epithet that Elizabeth, without knowing an ounce of Portuguese, understood to be exceedingly offensive, and immediately resumed her relaxed good nature. We'll go around the town so we can get to my house more quickly, Lota said. Elizabeth saw that her thumbs had been digging into the base of the cake. Still shaken by the near accident, she said, well, that was a fine how do you do. For another 10 miles or so, Lota kept repeating the phrase and chuckling to herself. That's a fine how do you do, she murmured, ha ha ha, as she flew along a terrifying stretch of road beside a river, Elizabeth clutching the car seat and still trying not to upend the cake in her lap. They turned into the hills, where eventually the road vanished altogether. They stopped at the bottom of an incline, facing a nearly vertical mud track. Sergio won't drive up here, Lota said, gunning the engine. He has no balls. Whoever Sergio may have been, he struck Elizabeth as a man of sound mind. Lota didn't hesitate. Bouncing upon the ruts and potholes, she maneuvered the tiny car up the hill from one dry patch to the next, like a little wren hopping up a tree trunk. At the top, they reached solid level ground, and there Lota parked in front of a cement wall. Come, she cried, leaping out. As Elizabeth struggled to stand, Lota was already there to take the cake out of her hands and say, leave that for now and come. 
So here was the famous house, introduced by a concrete plane that nearly bruised your nose. Lota entered through a hole in the wall, and Elizabeth followed her host through a number of long concrete rooms, one communicating with the next. When they stopped, they'd made a loop back to where they'd begun. As promised, the boundary between inside and outside was blurred beyond recognition. There appeared to be no inside at all. The house was open to the sky, and at present it had no external walls, just great gaping holes to the out-of-doors. Thin steel trusses, almost delicate, were being fitted over their heads and would soon, Lota said, support a roof made of aluminum sheets. The trusses called to mind the latticework of tree branches Elizabeth had just seen on the mountain road. Here and there labored dark little men in beaten up hats. My house is the first in Brazil to incorporate the style of roof, Lota said. The workers think I'm mad. They've never seen anything like it before. Of course they haven't. It's revolutionary. If I'm not watching them every minute, they build things their own way, as many times as I tell them otherwise. Then they become furious when I have to yell at them to tear down what they've done and start over. We spend the whole day screaming at each other. She laughed as she reported this, so the process of altercation and deconstruction were another aspect of the work she heartily enjoyed. As if to prove her point, Lota approached the foreman and within moments her voice began to rise while a knot of men looked blankly at the ground and shook their heads. At one particularly strident point, the men's voices objected in a chorus, but Lota immediately cut them off. Elizabeth backed away from the argument and stepped outside through one of the enormous holes in the wall. The house was odd. It took some getting used to. She sympathized with the workmen. It was like nothing she'd ever seen before either. At once solid and light, serious and cheerful, like Lota herself. She squinted her eyes and imagined what Lota had described. A house sheathed in glass. A glass jewel box on the mountainside, inviting nature in from every side. And she glimpsed just how immensely beautiful it would be. From the concrete slab where Elizabeth stood, the view was only the most recent in a series of breathtaking sights. A lush green valley spread before her, forested mountains rising on the other side. Behind the house, a sheer face of black granite shot vertically upward for at least a thousand feet, like something out of Edgar Rice Burroughs. You half expected a pterodactyl to glide across the face of the cliff. Long streaks ran down the black rock like the tracks of gigantic snails, while clouds cascaded over the lip, creating a waterfall of mist that was constantly evaporating and regenerating. The sun was hot on her skin, but before she began to feel she'd had too much, a cloudlet passed over and cooled the air to ease any discomfort. Lota was building a house in paradise. The argument grew more heated. Elizabeth turned to watch the men gesticulating while Lota imperiously held her ground. Just as Elizabeth feared they might come to physical blows, they all began laughing and embracing each other. Lota joined Elizabeth outside. They're wonderful, Lota told her, but they're like children. They'd sit here all day scratching themselves if I didn't give them a little push. Why is that? If you watch any Brazilian man for five minutes, you'll see him scratching and adjusting himself. It's as if he's constantly arranging flowers in a vase. 
Those aren't flowers, Lota cried. Those are the jewels of Brazil. If they didn't keep grabbing their balls, they'd forget they were men. That's the problem with this country. The men have to keep reminding themselves they're men, and the women are even worse. They have no balls either. Elizabeth couldn't help laughing, though she was scandalized to hear a woman speak so coarsely. Lota continued to look directly into her eyes without shyness or embarrassment, like the men who'd watched her from the kiosks on the beach. Only two hours had passed since she'd whisked Elizabeth away from Rio. Yet several times already, at different pauses and shifts in the conversation, Elizabeth had found herself thinking, I'm going a step deeper. But her hostess gave no sign that they were conspiring in anything secretive or untoward. There was really nothing more going on here than an interesting, attractive, and high-spirited woman showing an American friend her new house. Right where we're standing is one of my favorite places, Lotte said. A patio nearly as many square meters as the house itself. Can you see how the inside, the world of domestic life, what you might call our ordered world, will reach out to greet the natural world, the exuberant world we have no control over. Like a big mouth with its tongue sticking out. Or else, Lota said, like a hand extended. As she spoke, she made the gesture. Her hand, palm up, reached towards Elizabeth. Stepping back, Elizabeth peered over the edge of the patio. Below lay rubble, rocks, metal scraps. Are you camping out here? I don't see any furniture. You don't even have a roof. We've rented a friend's house down the hill until we can move in, but that will be soon. It's a tradition to have a party when you raise the roof, and I'm planning this party in two weeks' time. You'll be here to celebrate with us. More a command than an invitation. Mary's down there now, Lota went on. We're having a lunch today for some friends. My sister will also come. She's a terrible bitch, but she will be polite to you. It's only me she hates. Of course, all of them are eager to meet you. All of them? It was absurd, her instantaneous panic, but truly she found it difficult to breathe among such a group of strangers and their expectations of her. At the same time, she was angry that Lota had so quickly snatched away this brief moment of peace. You're the guest of honor. I promised to bring them a famous American poet. Yes, why don't you go out hunting and shoot one? Lota held Elizabeth's eyes with her kind look. Instead, I think I'll call one from the trees. Gently, she took Elizabeth's arm. But never mind that now, Elizabeth. Let me show you the rest. They left the construction site behind. There is the vegetable garden, Lota said. There is the donkey. There is the gardener who once bit the donkey. And here, pass under this bow. Let's enter the forest. Let me show you all its new and strange pleasures. Elizabeth watched Lota's solid back as she followed. Climbing the hillside through the trees, Lota pointed out what Elizabeth, even with her trained eye, might otherwise have passed. A lichen that looked like a crater on the moon, an armadillo's burrow, a nearly microscopic bloom. They came upon a stream and followed it back down the slope as it carved out a series of small pools. 
Lotus stopped in an especially lovely one. A waterfall cascaded down and moss and ferns grew among the rocks. For a while they sat on a boulder by the water, side by side, in silence. Before today, Elizabeth had never seen Lotte outside of the city. Lotte had been fixed in her mind as an urban creature, her dynamism necessarily linked to the city's own electricity. The museums, the parties, the galleries, amid the city's great architecture, that was where Lotte shone brightly. But here, among these trees and rocks and butterflies, with the city's cacophony a million miles away, Lotte was obviously every bit as much at home, if not even more so. She sat as still and quiet, as much in repose as the stones in the stream. I'm going to enlarge this pool, Lotte said. I want to make a bathing place here. It will be a secret place. There's no end to your plans. That's true, I have many plans. They're all perfectly beautiful. Everything you've shown me is beautiful. There is even more to show you, Elizabeth. The noises of construction had faded behind those of the stream and waterfall. The wind, a bird chuckling in the brush. Some minnows nibbled at the debris speckling the pool's surface. The branches hanging low over the pool were covered with bromeliads, and all along one branch bloomed small yellow orchids with brown spots. They looked just like a leopard's coat. My friend Pearl and I went to the orchid house in the botanical garden, Elizabeth said. Do you know it? Yes, of course. It's funny how they present orchids in a public display, as if they were some overly fussy Victorian sort of flower, don't you think? Look at those. It's a tough plant, living on the nourishment it derives from nothing more than air. It hardly even has roots. In the leaves, they're almost like a succulent, something that lives in the desert without water. Then it produces such an exquisite bloom. An odd, tight emotion, nearly like anger, strained Elizabeth's voice. Lotta was watching her. Before Elizabeth turned away, she thought she may have recognized something in Lotta's eyes. The gentle assurance that Lotta could see past her mask and didn't disapprove of what was revealed there that it wasn't detestable. Should we go back, Elizabeth said, suddenly worried the moment might turn malignant somehow. If you'd like. Elizabeth crouched by the pool and slipped her hand into the water. It was colder than she'd expected. She looked upward into the trees. Are there parrots here too? If you like, Lotus said softly, as if it were a promise. The two of them fell silent. Elizabeth sensed Lotta's eyes on her. She let her hand drift in the cool water, and then she cried out in childish delight, Look, there's a little fish biting my finger. Thank you. So, yes, Steve? <laughs> Um, I would love to if there are any questions. I'll try to provide answers. Please. Um, how much of um, um, Elizabeth Bishop's actual life and how, how much 
culture that is what you need to have and is just your own flight of fancy based on your character? I think the way to answer that question is that I almost every fact I took from was she herself documented or is documented in biographies and uh, everything else is my imagination. So it's full of characters from the time, from their lives. Lotte was very involved in uh, the government there and Elizabeth somehow, though she lived in such isolated circumstances, knew it seems thousands of people, like all of her contemporaries in the arts and writing and they visited. So some of those people have cameos and some are characters, but what I imagine was the private life between these two women. And how much of when you researched her, did you, did you get a feeling for the kind of person she was in the poetry or to what you meant about her? Or was it more of something that you had heard or talked to her? I, mainly the letters. I mean, the letters are amazing. And I would go back to them a lot and I would, I think that's where I really began to or where she began to inhabit me somehow was just studying those and the, the tones and the rhythms and much more that than the actual poetry because the poetry is so removed from her personal life. Some of the lines are from the letters. Yeah. Uh, but most of it, I guess, I made up. <laughs> but yeah, but the, uh, a lot of the scenes are scenes she may have described uh, that I might, there would be something that, I, that caught my eye that I would then develop into a scene or a series of scenes that might just be something she mentioned. So it's mainly imagined. Well, it's kind of an evolution, but I think, uh, you know, like many people, I came to the poetry, I came to the writing. Um, then I came to know that uh, she had lived in Brazil. That was interesting to me, but it was really the when again, it's the, when the letters were published, I think in maybe 1990 or 91, and I began to read them, they were revelatory to me. I mean, it was uh, so much about a writer uh, talking through her craft and her life, and uh, and also in there, which was a big surprise, was this incredible love story at the heart of her life that so few people that while she was alive knew about and that I found so profoundly moving that it just it began it sort of I began to be kind of obsessed with it and then it took me another ten years to start the book. But. So in a way that there is more resonant as far as the writing of this book, yes. Because they were the entry into which I began to know more about her and to, where it began to engage my imagination. So. 
Michael, sounds like um, you've uh, done a real good job of reimagining Elizabeth's life. And I'm sure there's a lot of Elizabeth Bishop kind of cult members out there that probably have strong feelings about that. Have you had any reactions? Not yet, but I am a little nervous about that. I, I, there is something about her that I think people feel a kind of a proprietorship or a protectiveness, as I do as well. And I think everyone uh, who has strong feelings about her will have uh, certain feelings. If they read this book, I think they'll, they'll think either like, well, that's nice, or no way, that's totally wrong. So I'm sure there will be reactions, and that's probably good, you know. Well, I think we should give you another round of applause. That was a wonderful oh, Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashling and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace or Facebook or at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.